some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. As Oklahomans awoke June 1st, 1921, they were greeted by an alarming headline in all caps and bold font on the Tulsa World's front page. New battle now in progress. After several years of such headlines the previous decade, it must have struck some as sadly familiar. But this wasn't about a war overseas. The Great War, later known as World War I, had in fact ended three years earlier. This headline referred to a battle far closer to home. The subhead was more descriptive. Race war rages for hours after outbreak at courthouse, troops and armed men patrolling streets. The bulk of the world's front page was dedicated to this so-called race war, though we know in hindsight that's a misrepresentation. A war suggests an offensive on both sides. That's not what happened here. What went down was this. Two days earlier, a young boot black, or shoe polisher, named Dick Rowland climbed aboard an elevator in Tulsa's Drexel Building, a handsome brick four-story building that housed several businesses. The anchor tenant, as it were, was Renberg's department store, which sold clothes. Elevators were clunkier back then and operated by humans. This one was run by a teenage girl named Sarah Page, and the generally accepted story has been that Roland lost his footing, either as he stepped on or as the elevator got moving. The exact sequence has never been fully clear. Whatever happened, though, Sarah Page apparently yelped, and someone heard her. Roland, a black man, was quickly arrested for assaulting Page, a white woman. Now, there's no record that Sarah Page herself ever claimed to have been assaulted. In fact, she soon clarified to police that she hadn't been. But the climate of the time was such that facts didn't matter much when a black man was accused of assaulting a white woman. And though the charges against Roland would never materialize, that didn't happen fast enough to stop what historians now agree was a straight-up race massacre. In a prosperous portion of Tulsa known as Black Wall Street, which not only cost hundreds of people their lives, but led to a decades-long cover-up among city officials, police personnel, and even the media that nearly ensured the details of the deadly siege were lost to history. Emphasis on nearly. Thanks to some truth-seeking history preservationists, we now know enough about the Tulsa Race Massacre to make it this season's final episode of Crimes of the Centuries. Crimes of the Centuries is sponsored by For Wellness. I like the idea of supplements. I know I don't get everything I need from what I eat, 
But at the same time, I'm always a little skeptical of supplements. With For Wellness, I have far less inner conflict because it actually tastes great. I put a scoop in my coffee, it adds a little cinnamon flavor to it, and I know from the ingredients it's good for me. I'm literally sitting next to a cup of it right now. For Wellness is a functional food brand with a unique range of snacks and supplements that are designed to help you get the most out of your body and mind. The coffee one I told you about is called The Good Stuff, and it's meant to supercharge the natural benefits of your coffee with just one scoop. Enjoy better focus, reduce the caffeine jitters, increase your collagen, and support fat burning with the power of The Good Stuff's five key ingredients. L-theanine, collagen, MCT, cinnamon, and Himalayan salt. Everyone needs a simple, delicious way to get functional ingredients into their daily routines. And voila, now you have for wellness. So if you drink coffee, it's time to give For Wellness a try. Head to forwellness.com slash COTC and use code COTC for 25% off your order. Once again, that's forwellness.com slash COTC for 25% off and make sure you use my promo code COTC so they know I sent you. The film footage of Tulsa, Oklahoma in the late 1910s and early 20s is downright charming. Despite awful Jim Crow laws, hamstringing, not to mention shaming, so much of the country, Oklahoma had become as close to a haven as possible for Black entrepreneurs. The African-American community in Tulsa was relatively prosperous, well-educated. I mean, they had done everything that they were supposed to do in terms of the American dream. This is Carol Anderson, Associate Professor of African American Studies at Emory University. You work hard, you save your money, you go to school, you buy property. I mean, this is, and this is what they had done under horrific conditions. I mean, when you look at the context of what Black America looked like at the time, the fact that they were able to do this, this is one of the things that we herald in terms of when we talk about the immigrant story, right? Photos and film from the time remind me of the images captured of the Osage people in the same era, just 50-some miles north of Tulsa. The women have their hair pin-curled with furs around their shoulders. The men show off shiny new cars that were out of reach for most Americans at the time, no matter their race. Despite the obvious and well-documented racism both groups faced, they were financially, at least, thriving in these places. There's another reason I bring up Osage as a comparison, by the way, but we'll get to that later. The most prosperous portion of Tulsa was a neighborhood called Greenwood. Journalist Gail King. Greenwood was a source of pride for blacks back in 1921. Famed educator Booker T. Washington coined the business district the Negro Wall Street because it was so prosperous and rich with many black-owned businesses. It was kind of ironic, actually. Because of Jim Crow laws, many Black people were forbidden to shop alongside whites, and that created a business opportunity for Black entrepreneurs. A businessman might buy several plots on which to open and operate Black-friendly businesses. He might also opt to rent his properties to other Black people, too. This eventually led to a booming 35-square-block chunk of Tulsa. They built schools, they built churches, they were educated, they were organized. This is Mary Ann Elliott, curator of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, talking to CBS in a documentary called Tulsa 1921, An American Tragedy. 
They had social clubs. It was a vibrant community. They had their own businesses. And as had happened with the Osage, some people hated them for it. This created such seething resentment in Tulsa that you had Black doctors, Black attorneys, Black businessmen. I don't know what they were expecting. If you refuse to serve or treat Black people, why would you then be surprised that they would unite to serve each other? And from a business perspective, if you close your doors to an entire segment of the population, should you really be so shocked when a competitor arrives to serve that segment and gets rich doing it? It's almost as if racism clouds one's ability to have even half a brain. Anyway, this backdrop of prosperity should have been a pleasant one for Black residents of Tulsa, but the resentment that bubbled beneath the surface cast a pall over everything. Not only that, but there were still, of course, those Jim Crow laws and segregation. And while this 35-square block was as safe a haven as Black people could find at the time, it was still a fraught environment overall. That's what historians and journalists mean when they say things felt tense all of the time. The incident that caused the tension to boil over was the one I described in the intro. Dick Rowland entered an elevator, apparently lost his footing, and at worst fell on Sarah Page, who screamed. A documentary called Blood on Black Wall Street sums up the range of versions of events. Here's a snippet. History books offer us one version of events. Something happened on the elevator. We don't know exactly what. But it's likely that Dick Rowling either bumped into, brushed up against, or stepped on the foot of Sarah Page. She began to scream. Dick Rowling, frightened, ran from the elevator. Family lore offers another. What the man saw was not a black man attacking a woman. What he saw was two people kissing. Sarah Page and Dick Rowling were lovers. He was accused of attacking her, and Sarah, from what we understand, tried to tell him, no, 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 we're in love. We're getting married. She would refuse to cooperate with prosecutors after they arrested Dick Rowland. Regardless of what happened, it's worth noting the circumstances of Dick and Sarah's encounter that day never seemed to jibe with the worst of the allegations that surfaced. Some people took that story of assault to an extreme and assumed that Dick actually raped Sarah. That's unlikely, though, because he got on the elevator on the first floor and the doors opened on the third without a stop in between. Now, the charge was absolutely improbable from the first floor through the, to the third floor. Improbable. That was Carol Anderson again. Is it possible? I mean, most things are. But since we don't have Sarah Page even saying there was an assault period, the idea that it was this serious seems quite suspect. Still, other people decided that must have been what happened. And the next thing Roland knew, he was not only arrested and publicly accused of raping a white woman, but word had spread that a posse was en route to kidnap him from the jail to lynch him. By the way, Dick Rowland wasn't a nobody in town, which helped ensure that the incident got a lot more attention from townsfolk than it might have gotten otherwise. They couldn't wait because he was the son of a prominent black businessman. The media coverage did not help to calm things. The Tulsa Tribune ran a story titled Nab Negro for Attacking Girl in an Elevator. That wording didn't just treat the assault portion as verified fact, which it wasn't, 
but the story itself incorrectly reported that Roland was charged that night, which he wasn't, and the story relayed that a lynching was imminent. The Tulsa police commissioner didn't want that to happen on his watch, whether for noble or cover-his-ass reasons, I'm not sure. So he ordered that Roland be moved to a more secure facility atop the county courthouse. The commissioner assigned six deputies to keep watch over Roland, with the ultimate responsibility for the young man's safety falling into the hands of Sheriff W.M. McCullough. Black residents also volunteered to help guard the courthouse. Some 25 men, most of them World War I veterans, went armed to offer their services. Now, if people had waited for the legal process to unfold as it was supposed to, apparently things should have smoothed over by the next morning. This is from a book published by World Changing History. Quote, To this day, there is no written record of Paige's testimony, and it is believed that she did not accuse Roland of assaulting her. According to several sources, she did not even press charges. As such, Roland was set to be released from jail by a judge the next morning. Regrettably, things did not work out so smoothly. End quote. The day of the riot, we were running. This is the late Eldoris McCondici, who was just 10 years old when all hell broke loose in her hometown of Tulsa. An interview with her was included in a documentary by the University of Oklahoma. When I was awakened by my mother, I was real frightened because she told me what was happening, and I couldn't imagine that. I just got up and was real afraid, and she says, we have to go out. Get out. She says that the white people are killing the people. Aldoris said that people in the streets were so panicked that they ran into a small chicken coop in hopes of avoiding the bullets coming down all around them. Airplanes was up, just raining down the bullets, and I could see them and I heard them, and I was so frightened I pulled away from my parents and ran into this chicken coop with all the other people. And I got into the corner of that, just scared as I could be. Obviously, Eldoris survived to tell the tale. She lived a fruitful life until 2010. Many of her neighbors did not, although city officials and media members conspired to hide that fact for literally decades to come. Crimson Centuries is sponsored by Stitch Fix. Have you ever considered your clothes as sort of a storybook of your life? As in, you know when you see a picture of yourself in that one light yellow baby doll dress? That had to be from the late 90s. What do you think your ideal wardrobe would be for your 2024 era? The stylist at Stitch Fix can curate the perfect look for your unique journey. I have been a Stitch Fix customer for years, largely because I hate spending time shopping in stores. Stitch Fix makes trying new styles really simple by sending a box to me, letting me try things on, and making it easy to keep the pieces I want and send back anything I don't. Here's how it works. You share your preferences, sizes, and budget, and Stitch Fix sends you five items in a fix right to your door. With your choices in mind and with sizes from XS to 3XL, they'll find your perfect fit so you can test out the merchandise at home and send back anything that doesn't look amazing on you. Shipping and returns are always free. That said, they do have over a thousand brands and styles, and you're assigned a personal stylist, so chances are you're going to love what you get. 
Thanks, Stitch Fix. They just get me. And they'll get you too. Try today at stitchfix.com slash COTC and you'll get 25% off when you keep everything in your fix. That's stitchfix.com slash COTC. Stitchfix.com slash COTC. Most people in and near the so-called Black Wall Street of Tulsa this fateful weekend in 1921 had similar experiences to the one you heard before the break, that of then 10-year-old Eldoris. Things were tense but quiet come bedtime May 31st, but they awoke to utter chaos in the morning. Events surely unfolded much differently for people who happened to be awake when the chaos began, but the truth is there aren't reliable surviving interviews describing just what happened when. While many assumed that the Roland arrest and supposed imminent lynching sparked a spontaneous and random riot, that might not have been the case. One version of events came from a report in the Chicago Defender, a 1905 founded publication that was the very first black newspaper to surpass 100,000 subscribers. In a contemporary story, a Tulsa officer named Van B. Hurley was quoted saying that the riots weren't as spontaneous as they might have seemed to the people waking to the madness. Rather, Hurley said that the Roland arrest was just a convenient excuse to get an already mapped out attack started. Now, Hurley's tale is tough to confirm for a variety of reasons, not least of which being that no one has been able to track down record of the guy in the intervening decades. But that account isn't the only one that suggests that this was a planned affair. Walter White, not the fictional math teacher turned meth maker, but a real life investigator for the NAACP, wrote in 1929 that the night's events would have happened with or without the elevator incident. Spontaneous or otherwise, here's historian Hannibal B. Johnson describing that night. A group of white men amassed on the lawn of the courthouse, numbering ultimately in the thousands. A number of black men, several dozen, some of them World War I veterans, marched down to the courthouse vowing to protect Dick Rowland from what they thought might be a certain death by lynching. John W. Franklin, whose grandfather survived that night. We don't know who fires the first shot, but that begins a bloodbath. African-Americans are attacked in their homes. They are machine gunned down in the streets. They woke up to the sound of bullets hitting their home. The whole area sounded like it was under siege, Bullets whizzed and popped, windows shattered, exploding, both from gunfire and other projectiles as people grabbed rocks and bricks to hurl. Mobs of frenzied white people lit torches and began barging into the homes of sleeping black residents. We saw coming up the wall four men with torches in their hand. This is survivor George Monroe, who was five years old that night. He gave an interview in 1999. When my mother saw them coming, she says, you get up under the bed, get up under the bed. They set our house on fire and went right straight to the curtains and set the curtains on fire. This was happening in house after house with the blazes merging to wipe out entire blocks in seemingly no time. On top of that, planes flew overhead, not only raining down bullets, as survivor Eldoris said earlier, but more. Many eyewitnesses report that planes dropped 
what I'll call incendiary devices on the community. So these would have been nitroglycerin or kerosene bombs that caused the flames to spread more rapidly and burn more brilliantly. He's right. That description indeed lines up with what eyewitnesses reported, including survivor Essie Lee Johnson Beck. Being a little girl, I was frightened. I was scared. And there were airplanes flying in the sky that seemed to have been dropping something down to the houses and setting them on fire. And of course, we had to run to try to stay out of their way. The Tulsa Tribune on June 1st, 1921, reported that the, quote, entire south side of the Negro quarters on either side of Archer, extending from Boston east to Elgin, was a mass of flames. Firemen were helpless to combat the flames, which were raging over a wide area, end quote. Fire Chief R.C. Adler said his men had tried to turn hoses on the buildings, but every time they did, the mob of white people opened fire on them. Adler said, quote, it would mean a fireman's life to turn a stream of water on one of those Negro buildings. They shot at us all morning when we were trying to do something, but none of my men were hit. There is not a chance in the world to get through that mob into the Negro district, end quote. The white sections of town to the north of Greenwood hadn't been touched, he noted. The story continued, quote, Following the fighting last night, white men everywhere were heard threatening to wipe out Little Africa forever with the torch. The first attempt was made at 1.30 this morning when two shacks at Archer in Boston, which had been used as a garrison by more than 50 blacks, burst into flames, end quote. The story wrapped up by saying, quote, Negroes remained in many of the burning homes until they were enveloped by the fire and threatened to fall. And then they could be seen by scores, darting from doors with their hands upraised and crying, don't shoot, as they dashed through the smoke to surrender and be taken to the prison camp established at Convention Hall, end quote. Now I'm telling you two things here which might seem at odds, that the contemporary newspapers helped cover up the massacre in Greenwood, and yet those same newspapers did cover the horrors in apparently accurate detail at the start. Both things are true, and to me, this is where the story deserves all the scrutiny it can get for as long as people are willing to remember. Individual reporters seem to have covered the happenings accurately as they first unfolded, but newspaper owners seem to have worked in cahoots with city leaders to make that coverage quickly disappear. Many of the articles I can now easily peruse were inaccessible for decades. The local libraries were often missing those specific editions. The tone of the coverage went from black people held up their hands, and that's an actual quote, to this. Now, before I play the clip, a language warning, it is foul. I don't want to bleep it, though, because he's recounting the actual words of a newspaper editorial published barely 100 years ago. Three days after the end of the massacre, the Tribune published an editorial entitled, It Must Not Be Again. It began, such a district as the old nigger town must never be allowed in Tulsa again. The rest of the story is equally vile. It not only repeatedly used the slur, calling many of the residents, quote unquote, bad N-words, 
but it also claimed that the whole area had been nothing but a, quote, cesspool of iniquity and corruption, end quote. Booze flowed freely, they claimed, as did dope and guns, which allowed, quote unquote, those people free reign to feel like they could shoot up the world. Now I'm going to read this next graph, which is verbatim, with the exception of me censoring the slur. I remind you, this is a piece written by the Tribune's editorial board, as in it was sanctioned by the bosses at the newspaper. It's not some resident writing in an appalling op-ed. Here it goes. Quote, Well, the bad N-word started it. The public would now like to know, why wasn't it prevented? Why were these N-words not made to feel the force of the law and made to respect the law? Why were not the violators of the law in N-word town arrested? Why were they allowed to go on in many ways defying the law? Why? End quote. And so began the changing of the narrative. Crimes of the Centuries is sponsored by Wild Grain. I just got a new box of Wild Grain delivered this week, and it's what I'm cooking for dinner tomorrow night. I got some pasta that I'm excited to try. I'm planning on whipping up a quick white sauce with shrimp and sun-dried tomatoes to toss on top of some angel hair. Plus, I got a little something extra for dessert, so very exciting. I didn't even know they had macarons. Wild Grain is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. And now you can customize your Wild Grain box, so if you're feeling like you only want breads or pastas or pastries, you can do it. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com COTC to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com COTC. That's wildgrain.com COTC, or you can use promo code COTC at checkout. As the smoke cleared in Greenwood in the days after Tulsa, the white-owned newspapers began referring to what happened there with carefully chosen words. It was a race riot, many reported, or a race war. The body counts listed were modest when compared to what's believed accurate today. The Guthrie Daily Leader wrote that 10 white people and 65 black people were killed in a 24-hour span. That was printed June 1st, the day of the massacre. In the days that followed, most newspapers adjusted the numbers to somewhere around 15 white people and 23 black people killed. Martial law was declared not just in Tulsa City, but the whole county. Oklahoma Governor James B.A. Robertson traveled there, while the National Guard, local law enforcement, and deputized white citizens canvassed Greenwood to, according to an NBC News retrospective, disarm, arrest, and move Black people to nearby internment camps, dragging some of them out of their homes. That meant that homes and businesses that hadn't yet burned to the ground were unguarded, and as such, they were looted. No white person was ever held accountable in terms of going to prison, serving jail time, etc., for the devastation of the Greenwood community and the murder of the African-Americans who populated the Greenwood community. 
The ultimate irony is that several dozen black men were indicted for inciting the riot. That use of the word riot is more important than it might seem. It's a broad term that means a violent disturbance of the peace by a crowd. It also conveniently suggests equal culpability, as in the whole town went nuts, everything was out of control, both sides were to blame, which is exactly how insurance companies wanted it to be described because they refused to pay for damages incurred in a so-called riot or civil unrest. No major destruction was reported to white businesses or homes, but the black side of town was demolished. And because of this riot label, none of the claimants asking for their insurance to do what they'd paid their insurance company to do were approved. Using the word riot upsets people to this day, Hannibal Johnson said. Those people are the black people in Tulsa that had strong resentment to the name riot because it was so harmful to those ancestors of those that did not get their insurance claims paid that were so disrespected because of the name riot. And they felt that our people, if you described it as a massacre, you would understand they were slaughtered and killed. The riot label not only thwarted people's efforts to rebuild, but it also allowed a shift in the lore. Those who wanted to believe that Black people were the aggressors could. The language allowed it. And the white-owned media didn't object, despite its own June 1st archives. As the decades passed, those newspapers didn't mark the anniversary as they did with so many other horrifying events. What happened in 1921 wasn't regularly taught in schools, and when it was broached, a lot of the students didn't believe the history lesson. In 2001, then-state rep Don Ross wrote that he had had a teacher at Booker T. Washington High School who did tell students one day about the massacre. The teacher, W.D. Williams, told students about how, on May 31, 1921, his high school graduation and prom were canceled with the outbreak of violence. Don Ross, a Black student then 15 years old, said he leapt from his seat and accused his teacher of lying. Quote, Greenwood was never burned. Ain't no 300 people dead. We're too old for fairy tales, end quote. The next day, the teacher brought into class a photo album with postcards of churches on fire, theaters on fire, white people standing over dead black bodies, black people being marched to encampments with white mobs jeering over their shoulders. Ross later wrote that as he was reviewing this evidence, Mr. Williams said, what do you think, fat mouth? In the late 1990s, survivors' families, as well as historians and scholars, launched a concerted effort to chronicle the oral histories of people who lived through the massacre. That's when we got descriptions like these. All of a sudden, my mother was excited. She saw four men coming toward our house. And all of them had torches, lighted torches on their side, coming straight to our house. And all I could see was black rolling smoke down south and the people going north. It was just the sound of this bricks, stones, buildings blown up. You just, just the war torn place. 
all of a sudden I heard my uncle say, here they come. And when he said that, it meant that the white folks were coming down 35th Street. We could hear them shooting. We could hear people screaming, hollering. We could see fire burning, the light from the fire from a distance. We, we know that what they was doing. They was burning up people's homes and killing them. People were killed. You go in and see the people mangled. And then some people you never heard of anymore. You don't know where they, where they were killed, where they just left town. As heartbreaking as all this trauma was, it's worth noting that it wasn't just the Black community that suffered from what happened. The story, before it was sanitized to a somewhat more palatable, both sides are to blame narrative, hit outside states' newspapers as well. Oklahoma had been bustling and was trying to recruit new businesses, and this ugliness, to put it lightly, hurt their economic prospects. Not only that, but for obvious reasons, it drove an even larger wedge between the races in Tulsa, so any prosperous Black people who did have money in white-owned banks rushed to retrieve it. Newspapers reported tales of bank owners trying to talk businessmen out of withdrawing tens of thousands of dollars from their institutions to no avail. But it also resonated outside of the area and outside of the Black and white communities. Remember earlier I had mentioned some parallels with the Osage Nation, which we covered in season one of this podcast, and which is also part of the New Crimes of the Centuries book? Part of that tale involved the March 1923 explosion of a home. Bill and Rita Smith were killed in the blast, which, when it first happened, was thought to have been a sort of Tulsa Part Two before the dust settled, and it became clear that only one home had been bombed. Otherwise, people's minds in Osage flew straight to, oh my God, what happened in Tulsa is happening here. None of this stuff ever happens in a vacuum. The effects of Tulsa rippled nationwide. Within a week of the massacre, some 6,000 remaining residents who had been shipped to internment camps were still detained in them. For months, they were only allowed to leave the grounds with their issued identification tags and with permission from their white supervisors. And yet, the Tulsa town folk who remained still managed to rebuild their district even without insurance money to help them, even with the lingering fear that it could happen all over again, and even with this happening, per the University of Oklahoma. In the days following the massacre, the city of Tulsa passed an ordinance stipulating that a home that had been destroyed by fire could be rebuilt only if it was a two-story structure and only on condition that fire-retarded materials were utilized in the construction. This measure would have made it impossible for most, if not all, Black business owners and Black residents to rebuild. Fortunately, the local district court issued a permanent injunction against the fire ordinance. Through all of these setbacks and obstacles, they rebuilt. It wasn't quite the same, of course. There was a heaviness to it all. And you could argue that in the whole scheme of things... It maybe actually helped to hide just how horrific the massacre had been in the first place, allowing for an easier whitewashing of history. See, it wasn't so bad. Everything's already cleaned up. But it was also something of a spiritual imperative for the people who remained, some of whom, again, had been imprisoned for months in the aftermath. 
They no doubt craved some semblance of normalcy, but they also needed to show that they were not defeated. A story in the Black Dispatch, published just a month after the massacre, reported, Construction work has begun among Negroes on their property on Greenwood. It described Maurice Willows, a regional director of the American Red Cross, coming to town to help with the relief work. He reportedly said that he had been approached by, quote, certain white parties to report the Tulsa disorders as a Negro uprising, end quote. Willows apparently refused, saying, quote, I've never seen more peaceable people in my life, and in all of my reports, I've referred to this sad affair as the Tulsa disaster, end quote. Now, the Black Dispatch, as you can probably guess by the name, was Black-owned, and newspapers of the time with Black audiences sometimes told stories of valor meant to help embolden people in times of distress. We talked about this in the Emmett Till episode, if you remember. So I don't know if this next piece in the story is true, but it does at least seem to show how some people were trying to stare down what had happened. Here's the tale, using the language of its time. Quote, A colored woman went up to town recently. Two white boys in front of her waited until she had gotten directly opposite them. One shoved the other right into her, almost knocking the old lady off the sidewalk. Immediately, the old lady collared the white ruffians and, while choking them both red in the face, explained, You burned my home, you stole my clothes, but you left my nerve. End quote. Whether that anecdote was true or not, the attitude it embodies definitely was, as evidenced by the rebuild. It took a while, a generation really, to recapture much of the grandeur of the late teens and early 20s, but by 1942, the district had more than 242 Black-owned businesses operating. This is Ernestine Gibbs, who was 18 when the massacre happened. I don't know how we built back so quick. Quick might have been eight, nine years, but then we built all back really better than it is today, I think. She said that in 1999. The qualifier, that it was better in the 30s and 40s than it was quote-unquote today, is because in the latter half of the 20th century, city planners used eminent domain to seize and then destroy much of the business district. According to PBS's American Experience, That area is poorer than other parts of Tulsa. The only break the affected family seems to have received in recent years is at least not a small one. The truth is coming out. In 2001, a group was impaneled called the Oklahoma Commission to study the Tulsa race riot of 1921. It released a report called Tulsa Race Riot, which called the event quote, one of the great tragedies of Oklahoma history, end quote. It also delved into why the word riot was insufficient. Quote, for some, what occurred in Tulsa on May 31st and June 1st, 1921, was a massacre, a pogrom, or to use a more modern term, an ethnic cleansing, end quote. It stopped short of saying governmental agencies were knowing participants, but it did say that evidence seemed to point to a coordinated attack. The report laments that while hundreds of Black people died, few of their names are known. In recent years, we've learned why, from a news report in 2022. 
Archaeologists have made a startling discovery, a mass grave in Tulsa, what they believe to be the remains of victims of the 1921 race massacre there. At least 12 bodies in a spot the city had no record of anyone buried. Sierra Pizarro of NBC station KJRH live on scene. Sierra, how's the city of Tulsa coming to grips with this? This is an incredible moment for the Tulsa community, one that's acknowledged by Mayor G.T. Bynum today. And I'm thankful for the citizens of Tulsa uh, who have reversed nearly a century of the conventional wisdom of this being something that we don't want to talk about and that we just want to put behind us and pretend like it never happened. This generation of Tulsans is not doing that. Today, historians believe as many as 300 people died in that 24-hour span in Tulsa, Oklahoma, with nearly a thousand more people injured. That said, there's clearly still a lot more to learn about the attack. As recently as last year, another unmarked grave was located. To research this story, I read a ton of contemporary news articles, as well as the book Tulsa Race Massacre of 1921, The History of Black Wall Street and Its Destruction in America's Worst and Most Controversial Racial Riot, part of the Black History Collection. I also watched oral histories and several documentaries, including one that aired on NBC near the 2021 centennial of the massacre called Blood on Black Wall Street, The Legacy of the Tulsa Race Massacre. Highly recommend it. Special thanks to journalists Naomi R. Patton and Kevin Aldridge, who served as editorial consultants on this episode. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page.